armed Ukrainian civilians fight off the Russian mechanized assault. And Eric Erickson gives insight into how guns play a role in Georgia's gubernatorial election. That and more on this episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. All right. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Gutowski. I'm also the founder of TheReload.com, where you can head over and check out our membership options today if you want to get exclusive access to reporting and analysis that you cannot find anywhere else on firearms policy and politics. You'll also get access to the show a day early and the opportunity to appear on the show in a member segment, one of my favorite segments. Uh, we had one last week. I actually believe we'll have one this week again, uh, just to like to get to know our, our, our members out there and why they joined and what they think of the reload so far. But this week, our guest is Eric Erickson, syndicated talk show host out of Georgia, who uh, I'm happy to have on the show. Longtime friend. Uh, you've done your show a couple times, right, Eric? Uh, but yeah. this is your first time on on uh, The Reload. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, you actually wrote just recently about uh, firearms uh, for your Substack, right? You have a you have a Substack yep. that people can go and, and check out, right? Yeah, ewerickson.substack.com. I'm kind of EW Erickson everywhere. Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, Substack. Yes, don't want to get you conf confused with the other Eric Ericksons. <laughs> I feel so bad for the other Eric Ericksons out there. <laughs> That's why you have to have a crazy, weird uh, foreign name like me. And then people <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> will only confuse you with uh, NFL kickers. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, but uh, so you wrote a piece over there called um, Guns, Babies in the USA. And uh, can you just give us a little bit of your your through through thought on this? Yeah. Point of view, like um, what, are you, it, what were you getting at with this piece? At, at a time that uh, the NRA seems to uh, be atrophying uh, for a lot of a lot of issues uh, and not as much a political force as the left seems to give it credit these days, the gun rights movement at the state level is thriving. Uh, in fact, uh, we are very soon, uh, Georgia's House and Senate have both passed versions of constitutional carry in those states. Uh, they're reconciling them right now. It looks like it'll pass. You'll have 24 states that have passed it. Uh, it looks like we may get to 26 states pretty quickly. And uh, you're going to have a half the country in states with uh, where you don't have to have extra governmental permission to carry your firearm once you've been able to buy it. Uh, we're not getting it at the federal level, and nor are we going to get it in very progressive states. Uh, but progressives have concentrated their populations in a small number of states where conservatives are more spread out. And, and a lot of independent and moderate people have come to the gun right side, particularly as we've had a crime wave in the last couple of years. If anything, it's the defund the police efforts and the crime wave that have driven a lot of Americans to adopt a Second Amendment affirming position that has led to now half the country being in constitutional carry states. Oh, interesting. So uh, it sounds like uh, from from what you said there that and from reading the piece that you think the gun rights movement or at least the the movement for more people to own firearms is is really succeeding uh, quite significantly over the past decade or so because of the passage of these permitless carry laws uh, and also the big gun sales spikes that we've experienced just recently here. Uh, yeah, and in fact, I, I've, I've quoted you in the piece mm -hmm. and, and a lot of your reporting on the record number of gun sales in the country over the last couple of years. 
Uh, I, I've I've said for a very long time that the synonym for gun owner in America is Republican, uh, somewhat flippantly, but also people who own guns in this country tend to shift in their voting patterns. And it's not one of those things we've seen in the data over time where it's conservatives buy guns, therefore they vote conservatives. It's actually anyone who buys a gun in this country uh, overwhelmingly over time begins to shift their positions on things like individual rights and gun ownership. Uh, and it, it's working somewhat to the detriment of the left. And it also does come at this time where national gun groups are kind of stymied in Washington. Uh, and the reason I actually call the piece Guns, Babies in the USA is, is focusing on that second part of it that, uh, you know, the gun rights movement has been so successful in this country and the NRA for a very long time did lead it uh, that it's allowed gun rights groups in the country to kind of kind of atrophy, kind of morph into just fundraising entities that aren't really putting points on the board. And there's a worry, for example, if the Supreme Court were to come back and uh, end Roe versus Wade as we know it. What happens to the vast array of pro-life groups in the country that have been set up over years and decades to advance it? Do they just suddenly become the grifty fundraising organizations or, or how do they shift? And so I think there's a warning here for other groups on the left and the right. When your issue wins, what happens to all the groups that advance the cause across the finish line? I think that's really an interesting point of view because you don't really hear a lot of people um, in the gun rights side of, of the aisle uh, arguing that that. The, really acknowledging how much success I guess there's been. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, they can't. Who wants to give a, a group money that says, hey, we've been so successful. Half the country's now got a uh, constitutional carry. Give us money. <laughs> right. It, 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 it doesn't sell you well once you become so successful to brag about your success. That is that is interesting uh, point of view. I mean, that's always been an interesting thought, I think, with any issue advocacy group because, yeah, the the, <laughs> the reality of these groups is that the better they actually do, the worse it is for their group because then they become right. less uh, needed and fewer people are going to give them money. And and uh, you do see this. Um, the NRA has even talked about this to some degree in uh, the, you know how the fundraising works, um, uh, especially uh, more so in the you know year to year shift because in an off year people aren't giving as much money generally mm -hmm. to any political group, but certainly the NRA is, would be among those. Uh, whereas there, because election years are where people are more interested in what's going on. And there's more of a threat towards uh, the interests of, you know, gun owners or NRA members. And so they, there's an influx of, of donations at that point in time. Um, I, so I think it's, it's interesting to hear, uh, you know, the, the argument laid out that actually one of the reasons the NRA has dealt with this corruption, the reason, one of the reasons that they, you know, uh, went astray, I guess you could say is because, uh, they were too successful. Yeah. I look, I, I think so. Um, the NRA for years was the organization that even Democrats in Washington feared. They lambasted it, they attacked it, but they also knew if the NRA spoke, uh, then their voters would listen. And as the gun rights movement became very successful, you had an evolution within the, the NRA's uh, lobbying arm and their political arm. They more and more became kind of an establishment Republican organization, not necessarily a gun rights organization. I used to call them out regularly for uh, being just like the Chamber of Commerce, uh, the, the, the Republican arm of the Republican Party advocating uh, whichever Republicans the Republicans in Washington wanted. Uh, but they could only get there because they have been very successful. They're probably never going to get 
nationwide constitutional carry, but they got the Heller decision uh, that they helped advance that decision. Uh, They were able to get the Second Amendment now incorporated against the states. The last of the uh, Bill of Rights to be incorporated against the states, they got it. Uh, You got half the country in constitutional carry states. You're close to half right now. Uh, How do you move forward with your gun agenda? What does it then look like after that? Um, and I think other organizations, regardless of where they go or where they stand, they run into this. I mean, for example, uh, the, the, the right to work movement has been very, very successful in the country. Where does the right to work movement go, uh, when it's been that successful, uh, where does the pro-life movement go, uh, when it's been that successful, uh, those organizations need to think about it. And frankly, I think some organizations, I'm not saying the NRA applies here, but, Some organizations in these issues eventually have to say, we've won. Can't we wind down now instead of just sucking up money that could be spent elsewhere? Hmm. That's interesting. But I mean, obviously, you also still have uh, quite a lot of opposition to uh, what the NRA wants to do or what the gun rights uh, movement wants to do. And you even have uh, in some corners uh, politicians becoming more aggressive, people like Beto O'Rourke in in Texas. Uh, saying they outright want confiscation. And so it, it is interesting. Well, that, that was until a couple of weeks ago. He's he's had to change his mind <laughs> right. again because he's yes. running for a different office. <laughs> he's he's uh, changed it and then changed back. And then and then now is yeah. uh, saying uh, is, he's kind of all over the place with with confiscation. But, um, but you know, the though, point it, is, just you know, to your point, yeah. that, that makes it even more remarkable how successful it's been because the fresh money and the big money is on the the gun control side, uh, the Mike Bloomberg's of the world, uh, the uh, Gabby Giffords of the world. Uh, you've got the 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 faces, the voices, the news media, the billionaires, the millionaires, the Hollywood crowd. They're all on the gun control side, and yet the louder they've become, the more hysterical they've become. The more CNN has gun control town halls, the more they seem to be set back. It it doesn't seem to be an issue that Americans really resonate with anymore, particularly as so many Americans now own guns. Uh, it's really hard to take someone seriously who refers to a magazine as a clip once you've become a gun owner and you suddenly realize, oh, they don't actually know what they're talking about. Yeah. I mean, I, I definitely think that that new batch of gun owners we saw over the last two years uh, during the pandemic um, is going to have a significant political impact, uh, as you alluded to earlier. I mean, there's uh, it's difficult to imagine that a lot of those people aren't going to change their voting habits down the line. Maybe not immediately, maybe not, you know, tomorrow, but uh, eventually, as you, as you alluded to, they've seen, um, and we've seen, I've documented a couple of cases where people have, have gone from being that first time gun owner who was, uh, you know, very liberal and believed in a lot of gun control to, actually becoming a gun rights activist in the case of um, Asian American uh, Pacific Islander uh, gun owners uh, mm-hmm. out in California. One of their leaders was uh, is a brand new gun owner and now is a gun rights activist. And and I think you'll, there's probably a lot more people out there who are going to go down that path and it'll have a significant impact on, on our politics. Yeah, I, I look, I, I think so. And that's not to say that the gun rights movement hasn't won everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, but on the major goals that they set out, they have won. Uh, you always need someone there to hold the line and make sure that we don't get set back because clearly there is an opposition there that isn't going to rest on its laurels. Uh, where you draw the line, though, and, and how the, the resources are allocated is a conversation that it's probably time for 
uh, gun owners and gun rights activists to start having. Uh, what, where do you deploy your resources? Uh, and I don't know that it's worth deploying your resources to say, hey, let's try to bring constitutional carry to California because uh, it's probably not going to happen. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, where do we advance in Washington, particularly with judges? Because uh, you know the left is going to try to continue to put judges on the Supreme Court who might roll back the Hiller decision. Uh, so there's money, wise money spent there. Um, but uh, you've also now got so many states that have advanced constitutional carry. Maybe resources can be deployed uh, more efficiently in other ways. Right. That's interesting. Uh, and, you know, I do think that you could look at some of these laws that have passed in deep red states as perhaps a uh, a symptom of what you're talking about. Some of the, um, you know, for instance, there was the Texas uh, uh, silencer deregulation bill that attempts to sort of nullify federal law um, yeah. on a legal theory that's Not already been happen. tested and failed right. uh, in Kansas. And then you have some of these Second Amendment sanctuary states where, uh, you know, the, the most of the bills appear to be symbolic uh, in not allowing state resources to be or state law enforcement to enforce uh, unconstitutional federal gun laws, but there isn't as much of a guidance on exactly what constitutes an unconstitutional federal a gun law. And then some of these states have even uh, made it a, a, a criminal act to enforce federal gun laws if they view them as unconstitutional. It's created a lot of uh, sort of controversy. And, uh, you know, I lo you look at these laws and they're in places that have basically everything that gun rights activists already wanted, like right. was carry uh, or constitutional carry and uh, or, or any number of other, you know, stand your ground laws, castle doctrine. And so you get to a certain point where it's like, uh, what can these uh, Republicans in these states do to try and show that they're, uh, you know, on the side of gun owners? And that's where you get into some of these more adventurous laws that uh, are going out right. on, on more it, of a adventurous grifty laws. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, but at the same time, obviously there, you can look at a lot of deep blue States that go the other way. Right. And uh, mm -hmm. uh, still have laws that uh, most people or many gun owners might view as unconstitutional. Right. I mean, uh, and, and that are being challenged in court right now. Um, and so I guess you're, you're talking about, changing the focus i guess or the yeah and, and look and I where mean, some of the focus needs to be on uh i would i would establish now probably more uh, law oriented groups kind of like a lot of christians use the alliance defending freedom or or first liberty uh where are the groups now that are going to go into the blue states and challenge the unconstitutional laws mm -hmm. and get those scaled back you're not going to have success in legislatures in some of those states but you might certainly have some success uh, suing in federal court now. So uh, there's always the reprioritizing. You have, I think, probably nationwide. Uh, there are a few more states like Georgia and South Carolina, Indiana, Nebraska, as, as they're getting close to passing constitutional carry work there. Uh, but then begin to reprioritize from a legislative strategy to a legal strategy hmm. of now let's start suing in states that have overly restrictive gun laws. Okay. So you want to see... Groups like the NRA or the Firearms Policy Coalition or GOA or the Second Amendment Foundation change strategy from focusing on, you know, and obviously these groups all have somewhat different strategies to what they do. But right. you'd rather see the movement as a whole uh, 
move on from passing uh, more laws in deep red states to well, yeah, when, when you get to the when you get to passing symbolic laws so people can just say, raw, I care about the Second Amendment, but I'm not actually going to do anything. Yeah, you, you've 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 kind of run off the runway there. Mm. Now go into the states where you can get wins in court. You've gotten all the wins in the legislature that matter. The rest of this stuff is feel good pablum, so you can fundraise. Uh, stop fundraising off of people in these states when you there are no more laws to pass to advance the Second Amendment. Now go into the states where you can sue the snot out of states and get courts to overturn their unconstitutional laws. And there, by the way, there are lots of great gr- groups out there that do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just think there's you've got to have a level of discernment uh, as to when your path has changed and sometimes when your path has wound down because you've been so successful. Uh, some people do become the victim of their own success, and there's lots of, there's limited money out there. So how should it best be deployed without taking advantage of the people who helped you get your wins? Interesting. Uh, well, speaking of one of the states that uh, the red states that still has. Uh, some move, some room to to enact new pro gun laws. Uh, as you mentioned earlier in the show, Georgia is right uh, moving to be the now would would actually they they could be the twenty fifth state. Uh, there's twenty four now because um, you had Alabama, Ohio, and Indiana all adopt it this year. Yeah, Indiana it beat it. Georgia was going to be the twenty fourth, and Indiana's beat them. Now, yeah, so, yeah, Indiana got get there first. Uh, but it seems pretty clear that Georgia is going to get there before the end of this session. Right. Uh, yeah. So the squabbling over the house and Senate is somewhat nuanced uh, and it's over uh, governmental buildings. The Senate version did not include a prohibition on carrying guns into governmental buildings mm-hmm. and the house version does. Uh, I'm sympathetic to the Senate version and saying you should be able to carry them. The problem is in Georgia, a good number of state governmental buildings are also federal governmental buildings, and you can't carry a gun into a federal governmental building. And so the the House put that clarification in there because, I mean, we obviously don't want people carrying a gun into a state governmental entity that also is a federal entity and they get carted off to jail. Right. Uh, they're squabbling over how to deal with that language and reconcile it. But it looks like probably either the end of this week or the beginning of next week, they'll have a clean version of it that both sides intend to pass. Yeah. And I, I mean, it seems likely that that's going to get worked out. And also that uh, Governor Brian Kemp, uh, the Republican incumbent, is going to sign. I mean, he came on, he has actually on our podcast uh, a couple of weeks ago, yeah. talking about this uh, issue in particular. And he's promised to sign it. Uh, he promised to sign it at a, an event with uh, a lot of the NRA uh, backing to it. So, um, you know, I, I don't think there's any doubt that, that George is going to get to permitless carry this year unless something really weird happens in this uh, this. Uh, conference committee session that they're they're uh, having now um but can right. you talk a little bit about why this issue matters so much in this race because uh, obviously it's it's an important race the especially right. in the sort of grander scale of things because brian kemp was uh you know somebody that angered uh, former president donald trump uh during the election uh and to the point where trump has now endorsed uh his uh, primary opponent, David Perdue, who's the former uh, senator from Georgia who lost in, in 2020. Uh, this is a really important race from a national political standpoint. Why is permitless carry or constitutional carry so important in this race? So the, the there's there's a little bit of history here that you, you got to understand. Um, the David Perdue 
campaigned for Brian Kemp in 2018 against Stacey Abrams. Uh, David Perdue, up until the month before he decided to run, was telling people he wasn't going to run, that da- that Brian Kemp was a great conservative and a great governor. Uh, but somehow or another, uh, the Trump campaign team convinced him to run. They did an internal poll that showed he would unite the party and, and run away with the race. Didn't turn out to be the case. Uh, the polling told Purdue what he wanted to hear, but wasn't reality. Uh, but Kemp does have a problem with conservatives in the state. Many conservatives very pro-Trump. They blame Brian Kemp for Donald Trump not winning Georgia. They think the race was stolen in Georgia. Mm-hmm. Uh, whether you think the race was stolen or not, uh, the governor in Georgia has no control over the secretary of state. Kemp had been secretary of state and knows there's a firewall in the Georgia Constitution. Governors are not allowed to play any role whatsoever under the sun when it comes to elections. The most Kemp could do would be to call a special session of the Georgia legislature. Uh, the Trump team wanted him to call it and throw out the electoral college votes, which legally no one thinks would have worked other than the Trump team. Right. The other thing they wanted was to uh, call a special session and change the election rules for the uh, for the runoff election for the two Senate seats in January 2021. That would have been unconstitutional as well. There's Georgia constitutional precedent. You can't change election rules from a general election to the runoff from that general election. Mm-hmm. So there was no reason to do that. But because of those two things, they say, well, Kemp didn't do everything he could. He didn't fight. Uh, he certified the results, which they didn't want him to do. Under Georgia law, you cannot contest the results until they're certified. So if Kemp hadn't certified them, the president could have never contested the election. It would have gone to Congress just without Georgia's electoral college votes, which wouldn't have mattered. Um, So they came up with a lot of excuses to say Brian Kemp didn't do what he needed to do. They tried to find multiple candidates to run against him. I'm told he, he, uh, multiple people, including his, his, uh, the guy who ran again in 2018, uh, Casey Cagle apparently was considered and to no avail. So they finally were able to convince David Perdue a month after he doubled down on supporting Brian Kemp, Mm -hmm. convinced him to run. And their attacks were twofold. Brian Kemp's not a conservative and Brian Kemp helped the Democrats steal the election. And I think there's another, there's one more wrinkle there too, which is that, you know, Perdue, Perdue's loss in that runoff, uh, you know, there's at least some people who argue it was in large part because uh, Donald Trump's Attacks yeah, on well, the election. I, I'm one of those people, you know, um, so I can give you the exact number there. Uh, 427,205 Republicans who voted in the November general election stayed home in that January runoff. I mean, we know who they are. We, we, we can pull the registered voter list and see who showed up in, in November and who showed up in January. It's easy to determine if they're Republican or Democrat. 427,000 Republicans out of 700,000 people stayed home. Uh, Purdue lost by 90,000 votes. Uh, he lost after Donald Trump came to Georgia. The Georgia uh, GOP chairman and Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene and others all said the election was stolen. It was going to be stolen again. In fact, the Democrats all over Georgia put up billboards uh, as like a Republican front group and said, don't bother. They're going to steal it again and totally turned Republican voters off. The largest decline in voting was in North Georgia, where Marjorie Taylor Greene is the congresswoman. It was where the last uh, major Mike Pence rally was to try to get out the vote. People didn't show up. Republicans didn't show up. So they lost that. Brian Kemp had nothing to do with that. Mm -hmm. They talked themselves out of it. In fact, the Kemp team, after that election, blamed Donald Trump and David Schaefer, the chairman of the Georgia GOP, and Marjorie Taylor Greene for suppressing the vote. They never blamed Brian Kemp. This this idea from the Trump team or from the Purdue team 
that it was Brian Kemp's fault is a very new thing uh, because for months on end, for an almost an entire year, uh, Purdue defended Brian Kemp, said there was nothing he could do, and Republicans talked themselves out of voting. So all of this comes to a head now, and Kemp's trying to show he's a conservative, and one of his big issues is constitutional carry. He had he campaigned on it in 2018. He never actually brought it to the legislature with the force of the governor's office to get it passed. He saved it until his reelection bid, which was a smart thing to do, frankly, because it gives him something to run on. And meanwhile, the Purdue team is still running on 2020 was stolen and, and he can't get above, I think, 38 percent in the polls. So now he's trying to 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 find ways to attack Brian Kemp's leadership, which he defended up until December of last year. It makes it very hard for Purdue. In fact, it's so bad for Purdue that the Brian Kemp team has even stopped talking about him. They're only focused on Stacey Abrams at this point. Yeah, and and obviously we we talked to uh, the Purdue campaign when, after um, Kemp came on the show, and and their argument is that you know uh, obviously Kemp had uh, actually Stacey Abrams made this. We talked to her campaign as well, and she made, they both kind of made a similar argument about Kemp, which is that he did support this back in 2018, but hasn't done anything to get it passed until now. Um, and it sounds like you, uh, you know, agree with that to some degree. Uh, you know, is that a legitimate complaint to bring up about uh, the Governor Kemp's support for this policy? Yeah, I mean, it's it's not, I don't think that he would not bring it up, but he waited until he needed to bring it up to rally conservatives. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've also had a couple of legislative sessions that were very difficult dealing with tax issues. For example, uh, the the 2020 legislative session uh, then immediately turned into a COVID session. They had to wind down and operate remotely. So in 2020 and 2021, you're dealing with the budgetary fallout for COVID. There was no appetite in the legislature for it. So he really yeah. only had the 2019 legislative session, and he was the new governor establishing parameters and priorities. Guns at the time really weren't his priority. It was giving teacher pay raises, yeah. thrown into the economic whirlwind of COVID, and now finally he's got a clean opportunity to do right. it. Right, and that is that is essentially what Kemp told us when we told me when we when we talked to him on the the show uh, that you know COVID kind of threw a wrench into some of the plans, uh, and then I believe also. Uh, that the Republicans in the legislature backed off on passing permitless carry in 2021 uh, because uh, because the the shootings at the um, uh, in, in Atlanta. Yeah, it, that, that we, yeah well. I forgot about that one. That was one of the issues as well. You had the Asian theme uh, massage parlor shootings. Yeah. They claimed it was anti-Asian hate. Uh, the media began to pile on there. So they kind of wound it down mm-hmm. at the time as a, a politically high risk thing to do. Yeah. And that wasn't really Kemp's decision. That was more. Um, yeah. The, so you got to understand that the, the speaker of the house in Georgia kind of controls the agenda yeah. in the state legislature. If he doesn't want something, he doesn't get through. And he has for the last number of years, even before Kemp blocked a lot of second amendment issues. And, and you've had to build a groundswell of, of support. For example, uh, for years, he blocked uh, legislation that would allow college students to keep their firearms in their dormitories in co- state colleges. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was only after groundswell of attention after a couple of students were shot and killed in Georgia that he allowed that through the legislature. Yeah. And so, you know, obviously it's not all up to Kemp, but uh, but certainly that, that's that been the criticism is that he waited until now to to back this bill. I suppose if he, if he does get it through, I mean, he, when he came on, he was talking about keeping his promises. And so if, if he gets it passed, and signed into law this year before the election, I suppose that's still 
counts as him keeping his promise. Yeah. You know, right? the, it, the look, he will campaign out of the, he will campaign on it hard. Yeah. So, uh, you know, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out and how that whole race plays out given, you know, the dynamics that you, you described there. It's obviously extremely uh, relevant race for the Republican party, even well beyond Georgia, given, uh, you know, the, the dynamics going on. So, uh, we're going to absolutely keep on top of it. But another thing I wanted to ask you about, and, and that you alluded to earlier as well, is uh, President Biden's nominee for the Supreme Court, uh, Ketanji uh, Brown-Jackson, who is um, up to replace Stephen Breyer once he retires at the end of this uh, this session. And uh, I wanted to get some of your reaction to what she said thus far, you know, we're recording this on the, the second day of our confirmation hearing. So uh, there may be more that comes out uh, later on during questioning. Uh, so, you know, keep checking on the reload to see right. what happens. But we do have a couple things that she said so far and, and some of the stuff she said in the past. Uh, however, we don't have any actual ruling from her that we can look at on a Second Amendment case. Do, what is your uh takeaway on uh, on her uh, attitude towards the second amendment she's she said uh that she under she will follow the precedent of heller and that she believes the supreme court established the right to keep and bear arms is a fundamental right um but you know obviously there's there's criticism or concern over her personal view as opposed to what she thinks precedent has been. Do you share that? Well, yeah, look, I mean, she's a um, she's a progressive nominee for the Supreme Court. Once she gets a lifetime appointment, what she says to the Senate doesn't matter. Yes, I mean, she's got to say that just like uh, um, conservative justices have to say that, well, Roe v. Wade is the law of the land. I respect precedent. She's got to say Heller's the law of the land. I respect precedent. Mm -hmm. Once she gets a lifetime appointment to the Supreme Court, um, Katie, bar the door, she can change her mind on anything and no one's going to be able to stop her unless they have the votes for impeachment, which they never will. So she can say all of these things to senators and give them the platitudes that uh, she needs to get through a confirmation process. But I don't think anyone left or right thinks if she gets to the Supreme Court and, and there's a, a case to revisit Heller, uh, would she jump at the chance to reverse it? Probably so. Or uh, when they get new gun rights cases that accept Heller as the law of the land, will she like the other liberals on the Supreme Court, uh, view it as narrowly as a right as possible. So yes, you have the right to keep and bear arms inside your house, but don't you dare walk outside your front door with your gun because your right to keep and bear arms doesn't extend there. Yeah. And, and, you know, obviously you've seen, uh, the gun groups come down on either side of this, uh, in the way that you would expect, right? The, the gun rights groups are opposed to her nomination and the gun control groups are, uh, in supportive of it. And I think largely, right. Uh, that's because of President Biden, who's the one who nominated her, obviously, and has a, a very long track record of being aggressively pro-gun control and wanting all kinds of new gun bans and, and restrictions uh, put in place, uh, even though he, as you alluded to earlier, has not been able to actually accomplish those things over the last several decades here. Um, but I, I, one thing that interests me, and I wrote a piece, an analysis piece uh, on the reload about this, is... Some of her background, right? Biden explicitly said that he was going to nominate somebody who was a black woman this time. And so uh, this doesn't mean that uh, Jackson is not qualified for the position, but it, it does indicate that uh, her 
ideological commitments were not the top priority necessarily when making this decision. And I, there are a few things in her past that make you wonder uh, if she has something of a libertarian streak in her in, in her, her history. For instance, she was uh, filed uh, an amicus brief on behalf of the Cato Institute uh, and a conservative um, think tank. Uh, now that that dealt with uh, the Gitmo detainees, so it wasn't gun related. Uh, but obviously, Cato is a famous libertarian think tank. And then also she spent time as a public defender, which we've heard a lot about as well. And, you know, she hasn't said anything about, again, about the Second Amendment during her time as a public defender. But there has been a recent trend of public defenders making the case that uh, at least gun carry laws are uh, enforced in a racially discriminatory manner and have, you know, in inequitable outcomes. So there's a few reasons why, beyond some of these boilerplate-ish statements she's made, you might think that Jackson could have a, a more libertarian streak on on gun cases. Do you find any of that convincing? Yeah, yeah. I, I definitely think when it comes to the criminal law related to possession of guns, uh, more likely than not, she would. Uh, for example, one thing I hear from public defenders a lot is – uh, for example, um, the, the use or possession of marijuana uh, is legal in a number of states. Mm -hmm. If you fill out a gun permit with federal law, you got to check the box. Have you ever used drugs or do you use marijuana or things like that? Um, and disproportionately, I guarantee you, uh, the, the prosecutors, when they find a, a black person in possession of a lawfully purchased gun, will go after that and they won't with a white person. Uh, there, there's real clear... Uh, racial discrimination. I was a public defender. I wasn't given a choice. I had to do indigent criminal defense. And I saw it um, the, the way that uh, a black person who was an indigent defendant uh, could be pursued or even a white person with an indigent defendant criminal attorney uh, compared to someone who had money. Mm -hmm. uh, there are clearly different ways prosecutors proceed. And it does give me a little bit of hope in that regard uh, that she may consider some of that. But overall, I, I don't expect her to be anything other than a progressive uh, progressives never disappoint on the Supreme Court when it comes to progressives. That's true. Uh, I, you know, I, I think best case scenario when you look at her history and the things she said, uh, even some of her talk about, um, you know, original meaning at the time of adoption. Uh, she's, she's discussed the, the you know, how to decide these cases. You could come up with the best case scenario of she's something of a, a left-leaning version of um, – of, of you know, a more, a more like left libertarian leaning. Um, right. I mean, she, look, I, she clerked for Justice Breyer. Right. Justice Breyer is more likely than not, if the progressives ever shift to become, side with the conservatives, he's the one who does it. Right. Uh, so, yeah, I could see her siding with conservatives on some issues. I, I think like Gorsuch. Uh, but like would Justice be, Breyer, not a lot. Gorsuch, a left leaning version of Gorsuch might be your best case scenario. Because yeah. Gorsuch well, kind you know, of bucks Gorsuch the trend and, and um, Sotomayor. Are regularly together writing dissents on criminal mm. law. They may be able to build a three-person coalition. Yeah, maybe. So, uh, but but then again, you know, you look at her, and uh, you could absolutely see uh, her pulling the same sort of thing that Sonia Sotomayor did, where in her confirmation hearing she said she recognized Heller as a precedent, um, you know, establishing an individual right to keep and bear arms. And then when McDonald happened, which was the, the follow-up case to Heller, uh, after Son, uh, Sotomayor got on the court, she sided with the liberals in a dissent that basically said 
the the founders didn't intend this to be an individual right for self-defense. And so, uh, you know, it's one of the hard things about, as you (laughs) mentioned earlier, these confirmation hearings, because the judges know what that they're what not to say more than anything else. Right. Uh, They're not going to. Yeah. yeah. Somebody I I saw, I think it was uh, Catherine Watson from CBS said um, the best lawyers of the country are today asking tough questions of another great lawyer. Their job is to ask her the tough questions to trip her up. And her job is to not answer the questions they're asking. Yeah. Yeah, That's the hard part about it. And and that's why you always want to look at somebody's actual rulings. Like you could look at Kavanaugh and Barrett who had second amendment rulings uh, in their, uh, you know, in their catalog and get a better idea of how they might be on the court. Whereas Jackson doesn't have that history. And so, you know, and that's, of course, at the same time, again, like that's also why you don't see the gun control groups who do support her citing anything that she's actually said or done uh, because she right. just doesn't have a record on it. And that's where you could get more of a wild card. But I do think uh, you know, at the end of the day, a lot of these divisive questions, you know, you often see the ideological uh, groupings stick together on them. And, uh, you know, I don't know if Jackson would be somebody to buck uh, the the other liberals on the court that way. Right. Yeah. I, I, my, my guess is that um, we will get a progressive for the Supreme Court. Yeah. Yeah. And do you, uh, I mean, uh, given what's happened in the confirmation hearing f- so far, do you think there's any chance she doesn't be, uh, get confirmed. No, I, I, I think she will. Um, I do think though that Republicans are missing an opportunity to, uh, run some of her statements, for example, uh, that she can't define what a woman is. Uh, they could help themselves pick up the Senate by running ads against Mark Kelly and Raphael Warnock. Um, what's her name in, in Nevada and in New Hampshire and those swing States, making sure the voters in those states know they've they've offered someone a woman for the Supreme Court who can't define what a woman is. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, obviously, I think uh, that's a large part of what these confirmation hearings are uh, more practically about, perhaps, is is sort of those uh, soundbite moments you can use in campaigns yeah. rather than actually convincing anyone to vote one way or another, because uh, largely these things are are usually pretty well decided before a confirmation hearing happens in high profile situations like Supreme Court nominees. And, you know, you never know. Maybe there's something crazy will right. happen. Uh, that's politics. But. Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, there could be a wild card and it all comes down to Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema as well. Yeah. And maybe they hear something that they decide they can't support her. But, you know, they're, they're pretty reliable Democratic votes mm-hmm. on nominations for the Supreme Court and, and judges. Yeah, and I think that, you know, these those senators all know what the key controversies are going to be before they, uh, you know, actually have these hearings and, and everyone involved knows this stuff. And, uh, so it's, I don't know that there's going to be any surprise. Uh, yeah. I, although you did see that obviously with Kavanaugh, but that was a whole different, uh, situation yeah. where it was, uh, these, these, uh, um, these allegations that came out at the last minute or that kind of got held back, uh, and then dropped at right. the last minute. And, uh, we're probably not going to see anything like that. Although who knows? Um, but uh, largely, these senators have made up their minds, I think. And, and it seems yeah. like that she'll probably get 51 or 52 votes. I would think you'll get one or two of the moderate uh, Republicans to vote yes on just on the basis of the old idea of uh, the president gets to pick who, who they want. Right. Um, which has obviously fallen far out of favor in the last uh, several one, several of these 
cycles, but you still have a couple people that hang on to it. Um, so uh, I don't know. Is that what do you think the vote is going to end up being? I would not be surprised if she gets 52 or 53 votes. I think you'll see a Susan Collins or Lisa Murkowski or someone right. like that come over. Uh, maybe a Mitt Romney come maybe. over and, and give her more than 50 votes. Yeah, uh, I think the best case scenario that Republicans are shooting for is to get to 50-50 uh, and a yeah. tie-break vote, which would be the first of its kind. Um, but either way, even in that scenario she's still going to be on the court. So, you know, it's, right. it's kind of yeah. more of a matter of politics than anything else, but Hey, uh, we appreciate you coming on. Where, where can people find your show and, uh, and read more of your, Oh book? gosh. Uh, you know, you can go to Eric Erickson show.com. It's E R I C K, uh, both ways, Eric Erickson show.com. And you can get links to my sub stack. You can follow me all over seriously, social media. It's E W Erickson, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, um, I think pretty much every social media outlet, uh, not on TikTok or Snapchat, because I'm a married middle-aged man. There's no reason <laughs> for me to be there, but <laughs> um, all over the internet. Wonderful. Uh, and we'll have to have you on again sometime in, uh, in the future, maybe when the Georgia gubernatorial election actually uh, gets closer to, to happening. We can get some more insight on. Sure. Happy to do it. And uh, yeah, we appreciate you coming on. Thank you very much for having me. All right, it's time for the news update of the week. This week, uh, Jake, you've got uh, an interesting story out of Ukraine, right? Uh, that's right. Yeah, there's big news out of a, a small town in Ukraine. As we all know, the, the the brutal fighting there is still ongoing. It's been over a month now. Um, but every now and then, you get some you know half decent news out of a terrible, tragic situation. Um, there's a, a small farming community in, in the southern part of Ukraine. I'm going to butcher the name. I, I'm not a Ukrainian language expert, but I believe mm. Va- Vaznesensk. Um, I think that's pretty good, yeah. It, yeah, at least phonetically, that's how it looks. Um, anyway, uh, it was a, st- a strategic uh, point for the Russian army to capture because there's a bridge that essentially is a major thoroughfare to the western part of Ukraine. Um, so naturally, the Russians wanted that, wanted access to that to get you know armored transport and whatnot. Um, but a small contingency of Ukrainian troops, um, townspeople, farmers, shopkeepers uh, banded together and actually held off uh, a mechanized invasion of, of conventional Russian forces, uh, which is quite remarkable. Yeah, it's fascinating, right? I mean, you had uh, the BBC was the one on the ground reporting this, although I think actually a couple outlets have talked about this battle because it was uh, fairly st- strategically significant and you obviously have something of a David and Goliath situation going on here. Right. Um, there were Ukrainian troops, but uh, they were really supported in large part by regular civilians, townspeople. Um, you had a, a quote from a local shopkeeper by the name of Alexander. He told the BBC, quote, we used hunting rifles, people threw bricks and jars, old women loaded heavy sandbags. The Russians didn't know where to look or where the next attack would come from. I've never seen the community come together like that. And, you know, I think that kind of sums up this story is the, this uh, incredible fight that these Ukrainian townspeople put up and the, the fact that they were able to overcome a much better equipped force that uh, was full of uh, actual soldiers. And right. that gives you some uh, insight into this idea of uh, armed civilian resistance being um, a, a, an actual viable uh, tactic in a war like this. No, that's absolutely correct. As we've covered before, yeah, it's 
as the invasion got going, that was a concerted effort by the Ukrainian government was that, look, we're outnumbered. They have a far larger military, so we're going to need everyone uh, who's willing to fight to stay and fight. And they armed, this, they liberalized their gun laws. They actively contributed to arming the populace just for occasions such as this. Um, the reporting from the BBC that we mentioned talked about how uh, they use predominantly small arms like AK-47s, which everyone's familiar with, um, mm -hmm. plus British donated uh, anti-tank missiles, shoulder-fired anti-tank missiles. Um, right. And we don't know exactly this, the scale and scope of the mechanized force that showed up to try to take the town, but they reported that there were at least 30 Russian tanks and a Russian helicopter that were left once the Russians finally retreated. So this is a, obviously a huge armored force um, that came to try to take this little town. And the fact that small arms and some shoulder fired missiles in the hands of civilians with some troops, but mostly civilians, um, it's pretty incredible. Yeah, it, it's really a microcosm of what you've seen in a lot of this war, right. uh, where Russian forces have come up against uh, distributed defensive attacks like this. Um, you know, it's, obviously there's plenty of conventional military fighting going on between the two sides, but Ukraine does seem to have ha you built on this advantage of an armed populace, or at least, uh, you know, a recently armed populace, right? Their, their gun laws um, uh, are still strict in comparison to the United States, but part of their liberalizing them right before this invasion was, uh, and we talked about this on the podcast before, it was sort of a symbolic uh, measure as well to say, look, you have the right to fight for your property and your your land and your life. And you're seeing it happen and play out in real time. It's not just the Ukrainian troops who had you know enlisted and been trained by the military who are fighting this Russian invasion. It is also these civilians, as, as we've seen uh, here in this specific instance, but also all across the country. And, uh, you know, it sort of underlies this uh, philosophical uh, point that a lot of uh, gun rights advocates hold to be true uh, about how it's more difficult to oppress an armed populace like this, especially one with uh, the will to resist you um, and obviously a, even a extremely brutal war like this one. Um, and to that point, the mayor of the town, um, uh, Valinchko, I apologize for my pronunciation now, but uh, you know, he said it's, it's hard to explain how we did it. It's thanks to the fighting spirit of our local people and to the Ukrainian army. This is such a strategic location. We're not only uh, defending the town, but all the territory behind it. And we don't have the heaven, heavy weapons our enemy has. Uh, so it sort of gives you the, the mentality that's involved here as well. It's not just about having a gun. It's also about the will to resist. I think that's exactly right. Um, it's, you know, you always hear this, as you said, American gun owners tend to have the same, or so, at least some of them have the same philosophical outlook in terms of an armed populace being able to withstand tyranny, whether internal or external. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's exactly the case here that you see in Ukraine. You've seen it historically when you have a motivated people, in this case, motivated by the fact that in order to survive, in order to keep your freedom, keep your homeland, um, you have the, that motivation in um, as well as the tactical advantage, you know the the terrain better than the invading force. You live there. Mm -hmm. This is where you grew up. 
um, you can actually put up a, a pretty good fight and take on uh, conventional forces that are, on, at least on paper, far superior. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, of course, this isn't uh, a fairy tale. And I think in America, the slogan liberty or death is, is uh, removed from the realities of, of a situation like what's happening in Ukraine, where they face that literal choice. Um, and uh, it's important to note here as well that the same people who uh, spoke about their uh, victory thus far in this fight also were calling for being armed with better weapons than just small arms. Um, you know, you had the mayor, uh, we have another quote from him, he told the BBC, uh, it's only thanks to these weapons that we were able to beat our enemy here. Um, uh, talking about these anti-tank missiles and, and small arms that they've used. Um, we say thank you to our partners for their support, but we need more. The, en the enemy's convoys will keep coming. So, uh, you know, I just want to underline that this is obviously a, an ongoing situation. It's We've highlighted this story of success so far and what it, uh, you know, tells us about, um, you know, civilian gun ownership uh, to some degree. Um, uh, as disconnected as that situation is from obviously domestic American gun politics, uh, it's still important to talk about, but this is something that is not uh, a, a, a finished story. There's still plenty to come in, in this in this fight that the Ukrainians are going through. Well, it's absolutely true that, you know, they're not out of the woods yet. As you said, that's important to keep in mind for everybody out there. Um, you don't want to lionize it too much, but it just is a at least an example of this phenomenon that we've covered. We've seen it historically. You see it, it obviously comes up a lot in discussions over gun policy. Um, so, yeah, while it while it is a at least one positive development, it, it can't be understated that this is still an ongoing situation. Absolutely. And uh, but at the same time, the Ukrainians still have that same will to fight. It seems uh, we have uh, another quote from a local funeral, funeral director who said, quote, the, these Russians are sick in the head, so we'll have to stay on guard, but victory will come and we'll push the Russians out of our land. So uh, we wish the best of luck to them, frankly, uh, and, uh, and hope that they can continue their uh, victory on to, through the end of this war. Yeah, we hope but we can to, keep bringing you stories just like this in the future, hopefully. So... Absolutely. Uh, but we have another members uh, interview coming up, another members segment, uh, one of my favorite ones. So we're going to head over to that now. All right. We're back with another members segment this week. One of my favorite segments where we get to talk to a Reload member, uh, the people who make the Reload possible, and uh, just pick their brains a little bit, learn a little, little bit more about them, see what our community is like here on the Reload. Uh, this week, we have Dennis Chapman, who's a... a Reload subscriber and an author with us. Dennis, it's nice to uh, meet you. Uh, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Oh, well, yeah, great to be on, thanks. So yeah, I'm um, I'm an attorney um, and a retired army officer. I was not a JAG, uh, I did something else in the army. Um, but uh, I live in Northern Virginia. I'm an attorney contractor for a, public, a government agency, which I won't name because they don't want to be involved in my Sure. Um, no you know, and I mean, that's me. Um, I graduated from West Point. I did 25 years in the Army. I went to law school along the way, nights and weekends. And uh, when I retired from the Army, 12 years after finishing law school, I became I took the Virginia bar and uh, and I practice in Northern Virginia. And that's what I've been doing for several years now. Wonderful. And you've also written uh, 
a pretty influential book as well, right? Uh, what's the title of it? Well, uh, this is my book, uh, The AR-15 Controversy, Semiotic, Semi-Automatic Rivals in the Second Amendment. I don't know how influential it's been. It's been cited a couple of times. Um, it was cited in the California assault weapons ban case by the federal district court um, uh, for the simple proposition that um, automatic fire and semi-automatic fire really are very different. Um, mm-hmm. uh, the judge. He well, just that's cited, pretty pretty influential. Yeah, he just cited it in a footnote, you know, to say that the AR-15 and the M16. Basically, the judge said uh, AR-15 and M16 are uh, identical in all respects, you know, except for the one that really makes them totally different automatic versus semi-automatic. Right. Uh, and then it's been right. cited a couple of times um, in the, in the, um, the New York concealed carry case. That's, uh, that's, um, hmm. or not, no, not that case. They're, uh, they're, they're asking for cert uh, to have the Maryland assault weapons ban. Right. Overturned. And uh, it's been cited in a couple of briefs, a couple of uh, um, abacus briefs. Um, well, that's wonderful. Mainly on technical aspects. So what what made you uh, want to write that book? What what is it that got you interested in, in uh, AR-15s? Well, you know that's interesting because I, I've always liked guns. I've always been attracted to guns, but I didn't really have a lot of experience with guns. I, I owned a couple of guns in my late twenties, but I didn't keep them. I really wish I could get that Colt Model 1991 back, um, but it's <laughs> gone forever. Um, but you know, but I grew up in the city. My father and parents were not into guns, so my first time ever handling a gun was at Cadet at West Point. Uh, plebe summer carrying my M16A1 and looking at the marking, saying, "What is an AR-15?" <laughs> you know, the Colt AR-15 on it back then, right? Um, you know, so I. But for a long time, you know, I didn't really pay a lot of attention to guns. But eventually, it occurred to me after I'd been in the army for a long time that. You know, there's really one concrete skill the Army gave me besides soft skills like being a staff officer, and that was how to shoot. And I was a pretty good marksman. So I said, you know, I ought to preserve that. So I, I, ought, to, I ought to hang on to the skill. And then I had a guy that worked for me who was a collector of kind of retro-build ARs, and he started talking uh-huh. to me about it. And then I decided, you know what, I'll do one, you know. And so I bought a, a kit from Sarco in Pennsylvania an M16A2 kit from some godforsaken Latin American country, probably it was beat to hell. It had been, looked like it had been used against the FARC for 50 years because it was, you know, it was just part, you know, no receiver. But, you know, so I built that and then um, I sold that so I could, and I applied the money towards a, a Colt SP1 made in 1966, third, second full year of production. And I got a smoking deal to give you a good idea how good a deal I got. I only had to add two hundred dollars or two fifty to the money I made off my homemade kit gun to get the SP one, so I scored a good deal on that. Wow! Um, yeah. You know, but that's what you know. What happened was the bug bit. I just you know I said, well, I'll get one, then I get another, then you know, pretty soon it's like a potato chip. You can't you go from <laughs> I'm going to build one gun to I have fifty and counting, right? Um, yeah, I know exactly what that's like. And that's when I, and look, I'll be honest. You know, I really started getting passionate about the Second Amendment when I became personally invested in it. And that's not Hmm. really the right answer. Um, I wish that wasn't true. Um, I was very interested in liberty issues writ large um, in terms of undue regulation and, you know, uh, over-criminalization and uh, Mm -hmm. 
overly aggressive licensing regimes and that sort of thing. But I hadn't really given the Second Amendment a lot of thought until I got personally invested in it. But then I started thinking about it and I, I came to realize, A, I came to what, what started happening was I started listening to what people were saying about so-called assault weapons, right? And I listened to some of the things that people would say about them on the control side. And I would be like, mm -hmm. I'm an infantry officer. I've been a company commander. I've done platoon live fires, maneuver live fires. You know, I'm not Audie Murphy. I'm not a Navy SEAL. I'm not an expert. <laughs> but I know, but I understand how weapons are employed in a tactical situation. And I know everything you people are saying is a lie. <laughs> okay, it's just dumb. <laughs> like the pistol grip and the handguard, the barrel shroud, to use the scare term, right. exist to help you spray fire from the hip. And I'm like, that's right. not true. Yes, there is hip firing techniques in military doctrine, but we never trained on it. You never use it. And now it's all obsolete because it's all carry, carrying the high carry with a single point sling now, you know, for your quick fire, right? So everything's from the shoulder, mm. even... I knew that was wrong, and I just heard more and more things. And then the conflating, you know, crime with combat, right? People assume that because, you know, both involve physical violence, they must be the same. But they're really not. You know, crime is a very different phenomenon from combat in, in at least one major way, and it makes all the difference. And it's extremely relevant in terms of firearm regulation. And then the issue of, you know, what's a weapon of war, you know? And so my, my military background gave me just enough understanding of tactics and firearms to under, to see that a lot of the arguments the gun controller was making weren't, were not correct. And so there I started doing research. And, and the result was, first I did a law review article. Actually, it's actually the law review article that uh, Ju uh, Judge Benitez quoted in the California case, which later expanded into the book. Um, and I set out to just address those narrow things. And then, of course, my, I started thinking more broadly about what's the role of the Second Amendment more broadly in our political philosophy of our country. And, and you know, but it all started out a very little small kernel of I like guns and people want to take them away from me for dumb reasons. And it. Yeah. You know, I think that's not an uncommon transformation. Right. Uh, so you started out, you had a little bit of knowledge about guns. You, you had training from the military. Uh, and then you started building your own and collecting and and then you heard things that were not accurate from uh, some gun control advocates. Uh, and then from there, you that made you want to write yeah. about that and research it. And then that snowballed into a book. Right. That's yeah. what it sounds like you're saying. right? Pretty much. Yeah. 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 Um, That's fascinating. You know, I'm an attorney by training and I'm a former infantry officer. Um, and again, I don't I'm not a hero. All right. But I have enough background to have some degree of competence, right? Um, and, you know, I really started, I said, I knew that the re one reason many judges are going to rule against Second Amendment, the Second Amendment side is they don't want to have blood on their hands. They're mm -hmm. afraid they're going to authorize someone, they're going to allow the public to have these guns and it's going to result in blood in the streets. And I said, I'm going to set out to prove they're wrong. I'm going to try to give them cover so that they, I'm going to give them reasons to they can grab onto to know that by overturning Maryland's assault weapons ban, let's say, they're not creating one particle of additional risk of violence in society. And that's what I set out to do in my book, and I think I succeeded. I, I just showed, you know, the key, you know, the key features of my book was just to, you know, I to disprove a couple of tropes, the spraying fire from the hip. 
I actually went and I traced U.S. Army marksmanship doctrine from about 1923 to now. And I showed, yeah, okay, there's some hip throwing techniques, but they have absolutely nothing to do with pistol grips or wraparound handguards. Those techniques were existing for semi-automatic rifles. They, you know, it's just there's, the connection isn't real. It's fake, right? Um, then I went after the issue. Then the next issue is, okay, what's a weapon of war? Is an AR-15 a weapon of war because it, because it resembles an M-16? Okay. Yeah. Because there's always a lot of controversy over that term. Yeah. So, so I said, okay, well, what is a military weapon versus a civilian? I did some research. I said, started looking in military doctrine, the development of military firearms technology. And what I found was with trivial exceptions, really every feature of a modern firearm that's considered essential to a military firearm with one important exception, only one important exception to this, every feature from really basic stuff like the rifled barrel was developed by civilian, for the civilian market long before it was adopted for the military market. That's goes to the mm-hmm. rifled barrel, first being used in the 1500s, first patented in the 1600s, but not adopted by any military standard till the Crimean War, right, or thereafter. Um, the metal receiver, which is fundamental to all firearms today, civilian development, but it's pretty, it allows you to do a lot of stuff that you couldn't do with a wooden stock that was holding the firing mechanism, like have detachable. Right, mechanism. interesting. Well, what's the one uh, big exception? So the one big exception, there's one piece of small arms technology that I think fairly has to be conceded is, is basically military application, and that's automatic fire, machine guns. Mm. That's it. Interesting. Okay. My research found every other aspect of it I was developed for the civilian market. You might say pistol grips on rifles were developed for the military market, but that's a nothing. Because I said, you know, there's nothing in military doctrine to indicate that anybody ever thought of pistol grips as making the rifle more deadly. They just appeared in rifles. Um, If they really were about making them more effective, then that would be touted. It's just a place to grab on. And the reason you can have a pistol grip is because you have a metal receiver, which was invented by civilian designers. You know what I mean? Well, I mean, it's, yeah, it sounds like a fascinating book um, that uh, I think a lot of people who read the the Reload will probably uh, enjoy uh, just because, um, you know, it's such a controversial topic and getting that sort of research uh, is is always uh, an important uh, part of uh, finding out where where you might come down on on the issue itself, right? Yeah. Um, now, so what what was it that uh, got you interested in the reload? Uh, I started. You know, how, seeing, how did you become a member? I started seeing quotes, and I started seeing some of your. I started seeing some of your pieces quoted and cited in different places. And one thing I actually really liked about it, and look, you know, I hate to say this because I will alienate people on our side. Um, but you know, sometimes our side can be a little myopic. Okay. We, sometimes we look at things, you know, we don't a lot of times, but that's true of every issue where people care deeply about stuff. They have a hard time seeing a bigger picture. One thing I did like about the reload was it's obviously a pro second amendment outlet as it should be, but I did notice in your articles, it was pretty fair and balanced and, you know, and, and, and it didn't always just sugarcoat everything like, you know, you know, like Town Hall does for conservative outlets, right? You know what I mean? I liked it because it's pro-gun, but it's also giving it to us pretty straight. You know, it's not just yeah, not just giving, you know, pretending that other arguments don't exist or embarrassing facts don't exist. 
you cover some like you know when somebody does something bad with a gun sometimes it's covered right um mm -hmm. that gives you credibility um and so i like that because it shows a level of honesty and yet it's obviously still nonetheless you know you know you're not going to pull an arrow sure. from Hoffington and go to the gun control side on us obviously right um right yeah yeah no, i mean I, I like it, it was straight it was it's more serious journalism than a lot of the other gun outlets out there even like i like it's bearing arms but i i like yours because yeah, it's a little Cam's more great. bigger but I, I that's what i like with the reload bigger picture yeah more, you know you know more yeah well, i think that's yeah. that's exactly how we try to set ourselves apart a bit by uh, you know one focusing on on hard news and 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 this uh, sort of sober serious you know approach that that doesn't like you said sugarcoat things or hide facts that are inconvenient or, or anything like that because um, yeah it's important people know what's really happening right uh, that's always been my approach uh, and so I'm glad to, I'm glad to hear that's uh, something that appeals uh, to to our members. Um, but uh, yeah, we really appreciate you coming on. And uh, what, can you share the book again one more time, just so people can uh, can have a look and where can they find it if they want to? Um, it's the Air it Fifteen Controversy: Semi-Automatic Rifles in the Second Amendment. It's on Amazon and BarnesandNoble.com online. Um, and uh, you know, it, it I, I go w well beyond just the technical technological issues. I I lay out pretty. I think I did a pretty good job of explaining why. Infantry combat is nothing like street crime and, and how uh, even a mass shooter is as, is effective with probably even a revolver as with an AR-15. Um, and I explain why that is the case. And, you know, a number of other things. I, I highlight some of the failures of the courts in dealing with firearms technology, you know. And my objective sure. was to give, you know, adjudicators some resources to where they can push back if great well uh that's that's wonderful people should check it out if they find it interesting we've actually had two uh two members with interesting books the last two weeks so that's uh it's a good streak maybe we'll hopefully we'll keep that going next week we'll see uh our next uh members segment but if you want to join uh the reload today and, and become a member and support what we're doing and potentially come on the podcast head on over to thereload.com and check out our memberships we got monthly membership yearly membership and even a lifetime membership for those who might want to go above and beyond and helping uh, sustain and grow the reload. Uh, but that's it for this week. We will see you guys again next week. <laughs>